Thank you, and welcome to you all. Today, we are so blessed by the fellowship of the body of Christ, and we love this. We love this so much. Welcome back, those that haven't been able to be in a couple of weeks with the various weather and challenges. On this moment, before we have our children go for Explorers and Pathfinders, I want to say again a big thank you to Marcia Nussbaum for coordinating and Jody Smith for coordinating details on these classes and all that's happening in uh, each of, some of you volunteering, those of you that are volunteering to help and uh, teach children or support that in any way. We're so grateful, your parents, your support, and um, Pathfinders and Explorers now can go to their classes together. And even while they're stepping on out, I want to make available too as we Again, think about, think about a battle, a battle. Today we're talking about the third of three types of boldness in the Bible, and it's so relevant to Sanctity of Life Sunday. I shared a story with you last Sunday about a confirmation class in a church in New Jersey some years ago where a pattern of preparing the students for finishing their confirmation was to stand on the stage and have a brief time of kind of a prepared interrogatory where the, each student was asked the question based on Romans chapter 8, what shall separate you from the love of God? That's the rhetorical question. And then each of the students had memorized sections of that very lengthy passage there, persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present nor things to come so they'd, they'd memorized it, and then as they were going down the line of the students, each one being asked, what shall separate you from the love of God, each one giving their memorized response, the, the congregation sensed there was some tension sensed in the congregation because the last young lady in line, everyone knew, has a condition, a Down syndrome, and her speech is affected, and she is not very vocal, and uh, yet as they came down the line, to this young lady, she was all ready, her face was beaming, and they asked her, what shall separate you from the love of God in Christ? And she said, nothing! And with that beaming, joyous response, there were many tears in that congregation that day for the loving example of what followers of Jesus know about every single human being and the value of their full inclusion and honor in life. And the stories could be endlessly told of the joyous discoveries of little ones being raised with various types of disabilities. And yet, and yet, in the pro-death culture, in this so-called pro-choice culture, which is really a favoring of the destruction of human life, there is a lie that has been widespread for this last half century. And I got to thinking about the fight myself because the first church I served as a pastor, South Mississippi, one of the first things that we began doing because of a, an opportunity that we saw at that point to rally people from many different denominations to stand for life, I began to meet with pastors all across that county to try to begin the early beginnings of a right to life chapter. We did the same thing about nine years later in another 
Mississippi community. And I was thinking as I watched the marchers on, on Friday that, that, uh, that this battle perfectly illustrates in a parallel way our calling as followers of Jesus. We stand and declare the truth because the old saying Mark Twain gave us that uh, uh, a lie is halfway around the world before the truth gets its boots on in the morning. That may be true, humanly speaking, but the other side of that, that Mark Twain missed, is that the truth of God always prevails. The truth of God is eternal, and it pierces the darkness like lasers of grace that open the eyes of people. So one of the good things that we see now is an awakening, more and more of an awakening to the reality of life within the womb. Um, I have a resource that I found very useful through the years, and I want to make available for anybody that would like to have one. Just feel free to lift your hand, and I'm going to ask uh, for some help. Um, Jeff, would you come and just take this and make, um, make these available? Just take the basket, if you would, and make one available to anyone that would like one. This is uh, somewhat of a, a pamphlet I'm careful to give not when the children are still in the sanctuary because the flip side does provide some medical information that we would want to be sure that only adults are reading. But this is a great little pamphlet. We've used this for years. When you were formed in secret, a wonderful way. It's a flip side little magazine style booklet. The first, this side is all about the miracle of life within the womb. The flip side on the reverse gives information about the horror of abortion, the realities of it. And of course, one reason I love to share this with those who would like to have one is that it's, the, it's probably the simplest hands-on way that I've found to quickly get to the essence of the issue for anybody that may be a little bit confused. And one of the saddest things about this whole situation is how many people have just entered into the arena of the public square really ignorant of the reality of the baby in the womb. And we are, if we are champions of babies. We love babies. Amen? Can I hear a shout today? Okay. I want to ask you to open your Bible today um, to think with me in the 20th chapter of the book of Acts. We'll be looking at um, a couple of other passages before that. Two primary passages I'd love for you to see is Acts chapter 15, verse 25 and 26, and uh, Acts chapter 20, verses 16 through 32. And both of these passages bear upon what we began to talk about in looking at what real boldness is in the Christian life. And first we want to think today a little bit about what boldness is not, as we then find these passages in the book of Acts, to think about what boldness, what real Christ-centered boldness is. And if you look at Acts chapter 15, verse 26, you see a, a statement in the midst of um, the conclusion of a pretty significant um, event, a formative event, of course, in the early church, in which a controversy was being resolved about uh, how the non-Jewish people who were coming to Christ in great numbers, how they would relate in the total body of Christ. 
The 15th chapter of the book of Acts is one of those that has this um, a, a, a very pivotal effect upon the future of how the early Christians related between these ethnic groups, Gentile versus Jew. And in some sense, this passage anticipates the fuller development of the truth of Ephesians 2, where, where we're told in Scripture that through Christ shedding his blood on the cross for us, that God has now done something that was quite unexpected for those raised in a Jewish culture, and that was that he was not just accepting Gentiles into the kingdom of God, but that there was a full integration, a oneness of purpose, let's say, a joining together and a blending of the diversity of these ethnic groups, and that through Christ, removing the middle wall of partition that separated Jew and Gentile, in Christ Jesus alone, we have peace with our ethnic partners in the kingdom. In other words, you might say that Acts 15 and Ephesians 2 give us the first glimpses of the powerful multi-ethnic, multicultural, global understanding of who is in the body of Christ. Now this, of course, this message and this the early understandings of Jew and Gentile sharing freely in the fullness of the treasures of the grace of God. This was a this is a revolutionary thought to anyone raised in a conventional Jewish background, of course. So as this um, very significant movement began to spread, it became necessary in Acts chapter 15 for the apostles to send a, a letter to all of the new congregations to help them know how the Jerusalem Council had resolved many of the questions surrounding this. And it's in the midst of their letter that I want to aim your attention here for a moment. It's a letter beginning at verse 23 in Acts 15. With them, they sent the following letter, Acts 15, 23, the apostles and elders, your brothers, to the Gentile believers in Antioch, Syria, Cilicia, greetings. We have heard that some went out from us without our authorization and disturbed you, troubling your minds by what they said. So we all agreed to choose some men and send them to you to deliver this message. And note the description in verse 26 of Paul and Silas and the traveling band of men assigned to carry this epistle. These men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Here is a characterization of the leaders of that day that shows us, introduces to us, the third of the types of boldness that I'd like for us to explore. And I want to call this one a blue flame kind of zeal. Now we want to see why this was a description so needed for their day and so consistent in the record of the experience of the Apostle Paul. But then I want to join to it, as you can see on the screen very quickly, you don't need to turn there, but you're welcome to if you'd like. 
the little one-page, one-chapter epistle right before the book of Revelation, the little epistle of Jude, little in size but massive in, in, uh, in, in uh, compelling truth. But the conclusion of Jude, his epistle, is that when you see the disintegration of culture, you see even the deception and the corruption of, a, of political systems and ecclesiastical systems and all types of systems that are of concern, that Jude equips the believers to stand fast in the faith once delivered for the saints by getting grounded in the gospel, and then he coaches them. I think of Jude 20 as a spiritual coaching verse. He says, but you, beloved, building up yourselves on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit. Now that text, joined together with the, with the blue flame boldness that we see significantly in the lives of Paul and Silas, is a great way to think about this whole question of what is boldness and what is not boldness. So when we think of it this way, it's helpful to realize, of course, obviously boldness, rightly understood, is a great quality in the Christian life, an absolutely urgent quality. When we think of Sanctity of Life Sunday and we think of this battle that many of us have been in for myself over 40 years and have walked through various phases of this battle, championing the right to life for the unborn, it's a reminder to us that not only in the area of the Sanctity of Life, but in every other area of of faithfulness to the gospel, that there is an indispensable need for a passion that does not get extinguished by adversity, disappointment, disillusionment, and distractions. So when you think of a flame in this sense, we're thinking of a useful flame, not just a quick flaming campfire. Maybe we want to hurriedly make a campfire uh, where we just want to have, have a little bit of warmth for a little while, maybe cook some marshmallows and then put the fire out and take the kids to bed at the campground as we've done at times. But no, this is more of a useful flame. This is something that has a longer term durability and this is why we need to distinguish the kinds of boldness. First, I like to think of three things that boldness is not and biblically it's very clear. First, a boldness is not an abrasive attitude. <laughs> and unfortunately, sadly, and the reason we need to draw some bright blue lines, I think, between what is and is not boldness, is that when, when a pastor sometimes or anyone would say something about, you know, being bold for God or boldly being in our culture, sometimes people mischaracterize that as a bull in a china shop. It's, uh, it's kind of like, uh, well, I'm right and you're wrong and, and I'm going to tell you what I think and uh, uh, just get out of my way because I'm going to blast you with my opinion. And that whole characterization may be a caricature in some cases, but we've seen this, have we not? We've seen this in the both the political and the spiritual arena where people mistake an abrasive attitude for being bold for God. And Paul gives us so many clarifying places in Scripture about how he approached uh, controversial issues, certainly engaging very passionately and oftentimes in spirited debate, um, intense debate over the facts and over reality, never back down, never compromise over the truth, but 
in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, he described a, a very significant kind of tempering effect that loving Christ and following Jesus has in all of our lives when he said, I seek to become understanding, build understanding. I seek to be all things to all men that I may win some. To the Jew I became as a Jew that I may win the Jew. To the Gentile I may come as a Gentile that I may win the Gentiles. To the barbarian I become as one of them. Obviously, it doesn't mean he becomes one of their culture, but he seeks identification. He seeks empathy. The second thing that uh, boldness is not, obviously, it's not brashness or boasting. And a classic example of that, spelled out clearly, again, from the pen of the Apostle Paul, the 13th chapter of 1 Corinthians, is that love is patient and kind. It's not boastful. It's not envious. It does not seek its own way. So the classic love chapter, often read at weddings, could be wrapped, should be today, wrapped around uh, the way that Christians are engaging in the public square, including and maybe especially in the social media public square, where many people feel that social media just gives them a license to peel all the varnish off and be as abrasive and as confrontational and often as ugly as they'd like to be and to think to think that somehow that kind of attitude honors God. No, there's a happier, more successful, more persuasive, and more durable way to deal with controversy. So we might say also that boldness is not, maybe this gets down to the kind of the inner root of this, that boldness is not being emotionally driven. And, uh, and I think that if we look at it like this and think about how much the need for boldness in our day is so crucial that all of us should be aware of our own inner tendencies to get our own selfish desires wrapped around our feeling of calling. A distinction the Apostle Paul makes in his writings that is so crystal clear and challenging is that there is a place for passionate, intense boldness that does not bleed over into demeaning and destructive and divisive attitudes that eventually deteriorate the capacity to communicate. I like another way Paul put this balance in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 5, when he said, we proclaim not ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord and ourselves as servants for Jesus' sake. If we put that 2 Corinthians 4, 5 as a banner over all of the communications happening in our culture today for followers of Jesus, it would be a good sort of a um, tightrope but very clear-cut manner of testing, am I, are my words being given for Jesus' sake? Now, one reason for that, and the reason I say that emotionally driven motives can sometimes spoil what might otherwise be a valuable discussion, is that Proverbs 15, 18 puts it this way, a hot-tempered person stirs up conflict, but the one who is patient calms a quarrel. Here is an example that helps us realize 
one of the profound blessings of being born again, filled with the Holy Spirit, walking in the grace of God, is that none of us are capable of these balances in our own strength. But as we see these three types of boldness together, I think it can help us get a composite picture that through Christ, there is a way to grow in passionate, holy boldness that is also advancing spiritual growth. So again, last Sunday we saw the first two of these three. Let me quickly review them. We saw last Sunday that boldness is a free-flowing confidence to speak and to act. It is a fearlessness that is seen primarily through expression of that, of that person's inner love for God being translated into a bold and free-flowing expression of his or her love for Christ. And I see a very paradoxical, wonderful example of this. Again, we won't take time to turn there, but I want it on the screen so you could tap it if you'd like to look at it later. Acts 4.29 gives a wonderful example of this, and I see it as an example of paradoxical power because Acts chapter 4 describes one of those times, we saw verse 13 last week, where Peter and John were noted for their boldness. Acts 4.13 describes the, the Sanhedrin's reaction to seeing Peter and John proclaiming the resurrection of the Savior in the streets of Jerusalem. And it says in that text that when they beheld the boldness of Peter and John and realized these were unschooled, non-academic guys. They didn't have a master's degree. They didn't have a Ph.D. in Jewish theology. They didn't have an understanding schooled in a formal environment. These were fishermen. These were men, these were workmen, these were guys who'd been in the, in the rough and tumble of, of life and in the glory of following the risen king. They had become passionate proclaimers of the good news of a salvation that can only be found through the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, you get to the end of that chapter and the apostles have now been flogged. They've been mistreated. They've been further mistreated and further threatened. And here in Acts 4.29, the Bible says, Now, Lord, we pray, behold their threatenings, and I love this, grant to your servants boldness that we may speak your word. Here is the paradox. One of the classic examples of the most pristine and effective boldness in the Bible culminates in them praying for more boldness. Now, maybe what that would say to us is that you might have come to this service today. You could have come here, and your first thought when this pastor is up here talking about being bold, your first thought might be, ooh, I don't want to go that way any further. I've had too many arguments that I regret. I've had too many confrontations I'd like to avoid. I'd like, I, I just don't, just leave me alone. Let me enjoy the beauty of my, uh, of my daily devotional life and uh don't, don't talk to me about boldness. I don't think anybody said it that way. But sometimes we can have a kind of a resistance inside, maybe a, 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 an understandable reaction to the question of boldness because we've seen brashness and abrasive attitudes and unnecessary conflicts. So when we strike the balance, here's what I find so beautiful, and I appeal to you to realize that if those apostles, think of it, if those guys who were such quintessential examples of boldness, if they had to ask God for boldness, how much more do we need to be saying, Lord, grant your servants 
boldness. And then as we saw last week, it's not only that freedom of fearlessness, but it's also a continuing. It is pursuing. It is going on. It is keeping on in the battle. It is that, uh, it is that passion that says, I've had many disappointments. I've had these setbacks. I've had these discouragements and these difficulties. But I continue. Look at Acts 14, 26 or 22 where it says, they continued, they urged them to continue in the faith, to persevere. And so that leads us then to the fiery courage, the third overlapping way we might think of boldness in the Bible. Not only is it the fearlessness of expression, not only is it as a steady pressing on, but it is also a, a flammable substance, if you will. That is, God has invested something in you and me that enables these first two, the fearlessness and the continuing, and it is in us because the Holy Spirit's gift is in us, and we might think of it this way, as Paul did in 1 Thessalonians 2, verses 1 and 2. The second verse of 1 Thessalonians 2 describes Paul's first communication to the church at Thessalonica after having been mistreated severely in that place. He talks about the adversity that they experienced there. He goes into that within just about three months after they had left the city of Thessalonica under great persecution pressure. And then he says, we did not hesitate to speak with boldness the gospel of God among you amidst such great opposition. What is the Apostle Paul talking about in 1 Thessalonians 2? I believe it is a kind of a, a, an igniting of understanding that comes from the gospel of Jesus Christ itself. The gospel of Jesus Christ gives us a flammable substance, and the Holy Spirit ignites the flame. And if we think of it in this light, then we can put together these two passages, 1 Thessalonians 2 and Acts chapter 20, and we can see something in the way that Paul's life was conducted that gives us a fascinating balance of biblical principles that I think are crucial for all of us in 2022 to start to set smart goals for ourselves. If you would think about it like this, when you look at 1 Thessalonians 2, 2, Paul is talking about a kind of boldness that is ignited by the gospel as the Holy Spirit provides the power. So this is not just a quick flaming kind of blaze of passion in a short period of time that then fades away. This is a blue flame zeal. It is a continuous stream. Now, we might think of it in that sense when we look at Acts chapter 20, verse 17, we see Paul now calling the elders of the church at Ephesus. He has gathered them together because his experience in a return trip from up at a place called Troas, Paul has a journey to Jerusalem 
on his agenda. His goal is to get to Jerusalem before the Pentecost season. And in the text of Acts chapter 20, verse 17, beginning at verse 16, we see that Paul is um, being taken by ship down the seacoast of, uh, of that area they called Asia Minor that is now modern-day Turkey. It's just kind of looking at what's the distance of that, trying to picture what was really going on here as they made this journey. It's about 250 miles from their starting point down to the place at Miletus where the Apostle Paul was meeting with the elders of the congregation at Ephesus. And when you look at what happened in the 19th chapter of Acts, you realize that part of Paul's mission here was having come out of a very tumultuous time of the church being birthed, Paul is again coaching. He is equipping the leaders who will remain to be men who have a continuous blue flame zeal for God. In Acts chapter 20, verse um, 19, Paul explains that his whole purpose in being there with those leaders was to impart to them, I would put it in these words, the same blue flame zeal that had carried him through his adversities that occurred in the 19th chapter and in which the entire, not only the Jewish reaction against his message in the synagogue, but also because people were being delivered from the magic arts and from occultism and from sexual perversions and the marketers, the, co the commercial aspects of those lifestyles were losing their livelihood. And an entire riot broke out in Ephesus because there were so many people coming to Christ, being filled with the Holy Spirit and abandoning the, the, the pagan culture with all of its accoutrements that had a price tag on it. It affected the market on the street and that generated an even greater revolt against the Apostle Paul. And as he reflects on it later, he describes it as an intense battle. Look at Acts 20, verse 19 in your own Bible. Paul says, I served the Lord with great humility and with fears, with tears, and in the midst of severe testing by the plots of my Jewish opponents, you know that I have not hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful to you, but have taught you publicly and from house to house. In the 22nd verse, Paul talks about his experience in light of how this zeal carried him through the hardest of times. In the 22nd verse of Acts 20, Paul says, And now, compelled by the Spirit, I am going to Jerusalem not knowing what will happen to me there. I only know that in every city the Holy Spirit warns me. Uh, the ESV text here on the screen, read this, this section aloud with me. Except that the Holy Spirit solemnly testifies to me in every city, saying that bonds and afflictions wait for me, await me. Bonds and afflictions await me. His best life now is, 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 on, is on the horizon. He understands 
Paul instinctively, and he gives us this, again, in a way of coaching the spiritual leaders that have gathered from congregations all across the great city of Ephesus. They've come there because Paul is in a, is in a time-limited journey to make it into Jerusalem before Pentecost. So they've come out to that little town of Miletus uh, from the larger metropolis of Ephesus, and they're meeting with the apostle, and he's basically equipping them for harder times ahead. Now, most of us, if we were asked, you know, kind of what church looms largely on the, on the page of history from that era, most of us probably would think of the Ephesian church because of the wonderful book of Ephesians, all the, all the great truths in Ephesians about, about the, the heavenly origin of the church and, and the bride of Christ and the eternal purpose of God and the equipping of the saints to do the work of the ministry and being strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. And, and we would think of that. And when we then see and we overlay to that the trouble that Paul had in seeing that church birth, then we understand there are some kinds of trouble in life, though we wouldn't ask for them in our flesh, that are valuable enough to say, bring it on. And that's exactly what Paul was saying. In fact, uh, the historical record is in just a, a, a section of um, a, a a study Bible that kind of summarizes the entire experience there. Arriving at Jerusalem, he found himself the object of intense hatred. Have you ever found yourself the object of intense hatred? Most of us have experienced some kind of animosity, maybe a little bit of maybe irritation, maybe intense hatred, but most of us have not experienced like a sustained, ongoing, and determined, intense hatred of us aimed at us over a long period of time. In the, in the life of the Apostle Paul, if we trace what happened in Jerusalem, as it says, a conspiracy against his life was formed. He was arrested under false charges, but the Roman soldiers rescued him from an angry mob because his Roman citizenship secured Paul certain rights. And in this uh, steady blue flame zeal of the Apostle Paul, part of that paragraph, and the reason I lifted that, is that in that one paragraph is contained over two and a half years in Jerusalem, counting an imprisonment at Caesarea on the, on the seashore of the Mediterranean, where Paul was basically waiting to appeal to Caesar. He's got intense hatred against him. He's got false charges on the docket. He has congregations across Macedonia and over into Asia Minor, of which he is deeply passionate about providing the pastoral care and the training, and he's stuck in an imprisonment less severe than one of the later imprisonments, but it's an imprisonment nonetheless in Caesarea. So here's an example of why, why it's so vital to understand the long-term blue flame zeal of, of passion that each of us need. Charles Ryrie, the editor of the a well-known Ryrie study Bible, made this comment, it's more important to gird ourselves for the grind of life than it is to throw ourselves into high gear only for the grandiose affairs of life. I love that phrase from Ryrie, the grind of life. There's a blue flame boldness. There is a passionate intensity that Paul described in that Acts 20, 24 passage as a, 
as a runner in a long-term marathon needing a clear, not only a clear goal, but needing a power source that was greater than what he had in himself. And in that text, in Acts 20, 24, if your Bible is still open in Acts 20, you might just notice that after he says, bonds and afflictions await for me, the Holy Spirit has been telling me this. He's been showing me the trouble that's ahead. And yet, isn't it notable, Paul's understanding of the gospel mission was so crystal clear that he understood that the Holy Spirit's warnings were to bless him with advanced understanding, not to redirect his mission. The Holy Spirit's warnings were to let him know, I'll be with you when you encounter it. We would think of it in our generation like, oh, the Holy Spirit was giving a prophecy. Well, that means we ought to go the other way. No, that's not what, no, Paul understood. Holy Spirit wasn't saying don't go. The Holy Spirit through the prophet Agabus and other voices that God brought in prophetic utterance were letting Paul know you're going and you're heading into a time of intense persecution. Here's what he said. I love this concluding verse. Let's, let's grasp this as he, for ourselves. Acts 20, 24, you might want to see it in your own Bible. It's here on the screen. But I do not account my life of any value nor is precious to myself. Simply saying comparatively, like Jesus said to disciples, if any man will not hate father, mother, sister, brother, life, his own life for my sake in the Gospels. That's what he's talking about in comparison. I don't count myself as a life to cling to. I count it an honor, he says, if only I may finish my course. Could you say that aloud with me, just those bold words in the middle? If only I may finish my course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify the gospel of the grace of God. Now, there's a summary here, kind of a conclusion that I think is really significant in understanding what happened why this dynamic can help us in setting smart goals. And here, here's the dynamic that I think we can, we can really get a hold of. And the dynamic is this. Paul grasped that in his heart, he chose a course. When we're setting goals in a new year, God does give us. It's not the plan that we are to somehow discern every little detail predestined by God. No, he gives us a realm of choice. I think of it kind of like a parameters within the will of God in which there is vast freedom of expression. That's one thing I love about the simple structure of church life in the New Testament is that the simple structure of, uh, of church governance and the design of the local church is such that it has enough structure for order and, and beauty and honor unto the Lord and uh, the proper developing of the gifts of God's people, and yet it is not a suffocating order. It is not a constricting order. It is an order that has breathing space within it. God creates structures that are designed for people to breathe and be themselves and grow and expand, and Paul's understanding of the will of God was similar to that. In his heart, he chose a course. Think of it like this when you're praying in these, for these upcoming weeks in your life. Lord, help me set a goal that I can choose this is a course I'm going to put primary priority focus on, but realize that in that course, 
whatever adversities you struggle or find in your path, you can trust God and Paul, as Paul did. You can trust God fully in the hardships and hazards of that goal. And a great way to conclude it and to think about how this blue flame is ignited and sustained then is to finish with just one little insert that I'd like to bring over into Paul's story from his own letter to the Romans. And think of it in a very brief verse in Romans 12, 11, where Paul is describing a series of actions that are within the capability of every follower of Christ. We may not feel it at times, but they're there. He says, show honor one to another. How many of you believe we can do that? We can, do, we can show honor one to another. He talked about bearing one another's burdens, rejoicing with those who rejoice, weeping with those who weep, serving with integrity. These are all things within the, within the reach of a redeemed child of God. And in the middle of that, embedded right in the middle of that, in Romans 12, 11, is this wonderful statement. Do not be lagging in zeal. Do not be lagging in zeal. Do not let your energy level flag, in other words, don't, don't back off from the challenge of being a bold follower of Christ. Okay, I'm paraphrasing it. Don't be lagging in zeal, but fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. And that phrase in Romans 12, 11 is a is a kind of a word picture wrapped around a can-do attitude because God has put grace within us. It's a way of saying, put your heart in this calling to bear witness of the living Savior in your world, in your arena, in your classroom, in your marketplace, in your strategic location. Be a voice for truth. Be bold in God because the holy boldness of the Holy Spirit that is ignited in you is like a blue flame zeal. And above all, it's God's grace letting you know, I can do this. The Greek verb in the middle of Romans 12, 11, that is translated fervent in the English New Testaments is a word that comes from a Greek root meaning to boil or to burn. It's a, it's a passionate intensity. He says, don't lose your passion. Let it be ignited by the Holy Spirit himself and let it burn as you serve the Lord. My response today on Sanctity of Life Sunday is simply this. We can do this. Let's pray. Lord, I ask in the name of Jesus that in the depth of our hearts this day, we could identify, of course, with a classic example of where this boldness is needed. We've seen it on the streets of Washington, D.C. and then on the West Coast with, with our, our friends and our partners marching for the lives of the unborn and for their moms and all that are affected by the need for the care of the unborn. We also apply it across the spectrum in all of our lives. There is a, there's a tender, loving grace that can come through a passionate, bold intensity that can only happen when we know that the power of your Holy Spirit can help us see that as we chart our course, you are truly ordering our steps. In Jesus' name, amen.